Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Antifada. This is episode 241-ish, I guess. Probably Let's just call it. 242, actually. 240. We're going to put this out next week. All right, 242. So, Antifada fans, note that down. 242. You're going to want to put this in your... Um, your little blue books because they're because they're, there will be a test at the end of this uh, calendar year so do be sure to take meticulous notes we are here with me sean we have of course andy uh as well and we have a returning guest a returning champion we have jason miles of this is revolution podcast and webcast also the singer of uh bitter lake and the author of an uh, article out this month in Damage Magazine. Jason, what's up, man? Welcome back. Hey, thank you for saying that I do music. I appreciate that. Well, I was watching some Bitter Lake before this. I okay. saw some <laughs> videos on YouTube. You know? You're a touring musician. Yes, I've got stamps on the passport. Bitter for- Lake is not just an Adam Curtis documentary about the Afghanistan war. No, nope. Is your band named after uh, the Curtis documentary? I literally was in, I was living in this warehouse in West Oakland. My, my ex, who I did music with for seven years, had took off. I came home to an empty place, and I watched that documentary for the first time super randomly. Are you and, fucking serious? It really is named after that? Yep. And I was wow. like, I'm going to name a band. Because we were supposed to do some shows with this band Flipper. Do you remember the band Flipper? And... Uh, they couldn't remember our name when we were called Lafin Absolute Demo, me and my ex. And he goes, get a simpler name. Don't do this long, fancy to Ted for Flipper. Said that. He goes, just get a simple name. You're going to go further with a simple name. I wonder so. if they even remember Will Shatter's name at this point. <laughs> they, they do. <laughs> I, think, I think Flipper was one of those bands I heard of because wasn't Kurt Cobain a fan of them? Huge. Oh, yeah. Right. Nova Selleck joined them right after Kurt uh, passed away. Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah. Because there was, like, a time when um, people would get the, especially after he died, get the notebooks and, like, the little scat books of uh, Kurt Cobain, and they'd, you know, all the things that he was into and all the bands, they would study them religiously. And as you guys know now, the 90s are back. Terrible pants are back. (laughs) Fucking chain wallets are back. Fucking bad boots are back. Jenkos are back. It's a whole new world, man. I haven't seen chain wallets. Is anyone you bring up Flipper? Because I'm I'm about to do this talk at Woodbine uh, about earthworms, or I'm hosting this talk about earthworms, uh, mm-hmm. and like the Anthropocene, and I'm going to read the lyrics to the song Earthworm before the talk. So, that's you know my my was it your uh, your iTunes profile is me and Ted Falcone watching a football game at the warehouse. Like I got to know those guys actually pretty well, especially Ted, um, who's cool. kind of a guitar hero of mine. Yeah, he's a legend. He, he was so, in the original version of the band, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm I sure was, people... There, they were doing the rehearsals with David Yao right behind me where I lived. Damn. He was in I, Sleepers, he, actually. He was in the pre-Flipper band. That's amazing. Ted's a little older than... Yeah, Ted's a little older than two. So, yeah. No, they Ted just posted a picture on a on social media of a flyer from... It was two nights. It was Flipper, Black Flag, the Rollins years, and... um. The meat puppets playing the Mubuhe Gardens for two nights. Oh shit, that would have gone off. Crazy man. When I see some of those things, or I used to listen to those stories, it was it was uh, kind of the impetus for what I do with the show. It was me, you know, interrogating my heroes in this warehouse for six years. That's beautiful. 
Well, you are a good host and good interrogator. And in case people thought that uh, we rehearsed all of this witty music banter before, we didn't. We're just like that. Today, we're going to actually, I have a music story to tell you, Jason and Andy. And then I think you also, Jason, have a story to tell me. We spoke on the phone last week and you talked about some cringe libs that you went on tour with and you had to walk off tour. But <laughs> So I want to hear that one for sure while we're on the music tip. Uh, and then we also have to talk about your uh, article about uh, Ibram Kendi X and sort of uh, the way in which the politics of the Bernie era went very wrong and... Um, how this particular gentleman is kind of at the center of that wrongness. Uh, you want to hear my story? Andy, I'm telling you this for the first time. I told Jason this last week on the phone. You ready for it? All right. So Rax and I, for the last six months or so, maybe a little bit longer, have been getting really back into like um, folkways, like sort of um, anthology folk stuff. We went two weeks ago to the Brooklyn Folk Festival, which was at a local church, and it was absolutely amazing. We saw David Johansson, who has morphed himself now into like an incredible fucking like traditional standard singing blues man and it might that might sound corny but it's actually really fucking good we saw him play we saw a bunch of local performers we saw um this one bit they did where there were four professionals up on stage people um local folk people and they just threw out numbers from the Smithsonian uh, Folkways anthology at them and from memory they busted them out so Rax is learning banjo and I've been playing guitar and we've been doing our own thing so last week we were like oh let's go to a show it was Friday night so we saw this thing happening I'm not gonna throw anybody under the bus or name any names here but we went to a local place in Brooklyn and there was a band, a big band, and then there was a kid headlining before him. So we go there, nice place, nice time. This kid gets up on stage. He's like 23, 24 years old at the absolute most. Very young kid, uh, very wide-eyed, bushy-tailed. He was uh, telling little stories about how this was his first trip to New York, and he loves this city, and he's excited to play at this club, blah, 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 blah. Uh, he's a black kid from Illinois, and he's a folk singer. And he's got a beautiful voice and he sings some great songs. So the second song he sings after the first normal uh, folk song is he says, I'd like to sing a song about something really close to my heart because I live in Illinois and nearby in Missouri, they're taking away a woman's right to choose. So I wrote this song about it. And he, with his beautiful voice and his nice guitar playing, he sang this really heartfelt song about politics, right? And we're like, good. And everybody clapped. It was nice, you know, supporting women's right to choose. And then... The third song comes. And now, of course, Rax is Jewish, might have been the only Jewish person there. But this kid goes up to the mic and he's like, like I was talking about with the last song, we have to stand up to hatred and discrimination. And everyone's like, yeah. He's like, we got to stand up to racism. The crowd cheers. We have to stand up to misogyny. Crowd cheers. We have to stand up to anti-Semitism. Crowd cheers. And we're like, oh, wait, is this about to happen? And he goes, this next song I wrote, or this next song I'm doing is in support of the people fighting off the terrible terrorists in the Middle East, the, pe 
this is, you know, Hamas, like the Palestinians, I, I don't even think he said Hamas, but the Palestinians went in and just massacred all these lives, uh, did terrorist atrocities there. And he said the brave fighters of the IDF are out there right now trying to take down the, the terrorists. And we have to stop the hate. There's so much hate against Israelis right now. We have to stop it. And, I, and we're both looking at each other like, oh, my God, he's really doing this. And then in case you think and everybody kind of gets tense in the audience, too, right, because this was only five weeks into Israel's massive atrocity campaign in, the, in Gaza and over 10,000 children dead. We all know the story very well. But then it gets worse. And he goes, uh, in order to support all Jewish people right now, including those in the IDF, but everybody else affected by this, I'd like to sing a nagun, which I don't know this, but apparently that's like a song sung at, uh, is it synagogue or at Seder? It's like at a Jewish, um, it's a Jewish religious song. And so he's like, this one goes out to the IDF and he starts saying, we're both looking at each other and we're like thinking like, what the hell do we do? And uh, after a couple minutes, you know, we paid good money for the show. After a couple minutes, we both just shook our heads and we got up, turned our backs and walked out of the place. Then we were like, should we have made a scene about it? Would it have been done anything to like stand up and just say, because he didn't say a single thing about Gaza and the Palestinians and the dead. It was just all like supporting the IDF and stuff. So we basically stormed out of the place and walked away. This was over a week ago now. So my indignation has gone down a little bit, but I was trying to, you know, hold back Rex from absolutely losing it, especially the fact that he sang this religious song you know, for the IDF at the end. So that's a story I wanted to relate to you guys, a music-related story, something still topical right now. What do you guys think about that? Better story, I, I saw this band Special Interest from New Orleans yesterday. They're a punk band um, with a black woman lead singer, and they recently canceled their entire European tour with Sleaford Mods because Sleaford Mods stopped a show when someone threw a Palestinian scarf on the stage and released a statement saying that they're not taking any sides. So special interest lost a lot of money and probably uh, a lot of you know potential uh, popularity by refusing to play that tour. So that's a good story, I guess. Or they gain more popularity Maybe. by publicly refusing to play that tour. Now I'm now I'm Maybe. talking about them. Jason, what do you think? And then I'm going to give my sort of broader um, take think, on it. When we got off that tour with a very very woke group, we were extremely quiet about it. And we didn't say anything on social media about it. And I still don't mention the name of the band because I just didn't, I didn't want to get into a public back and forth. And that's very good for your career to get into a public back and forth. You're going to have a lot of people that are going to hate you or love you, but it's going to put you where people are just going to listen to you regardless. So that's kind of one of those, is there any bad publicity thing? Do I think these people purposely went out of their way to get a certain amount? I don't know them personally. But I do know that we live in a moment right now where um, even if you have knee-jerk reactions to things, the first thing to do is to tell the world about how you feel about it. So I'm not going to call them any sort of name and say that they're they're purposely trying to do this for some sort of attention because there probably is some very, very honest intentions behind that. I mean, that's it's pretty noble to say, no, nah, I'm good. I'll walk away from it. Um, and you probably want to be loud about it because you want to let people know that might be coming out to see you. But I mean, if you're the opening band on the tour, the people that are coming out to see you are very few and far between. So uh, you don't have that level of, of, of humility when you're in your young 20s, even early 30s, when you're walking out of a tour. 
you know, we all walked out of the tour. A couple of us were in our forties, so we kind of knew to. You know, How bad to- was it? You were on tour for like a month or something like that, and six it was just weeks, six weeks. The U.S. and Canada, and uh, every night there was something that I had said wrong or I had to be corrected on. And it started to get really bad once we hit the East Coast and we started in the West Coast. I mean, the tour started off um, us telling them, like, hey, I don't think you can rent a van like this. <laughs> I think you actually need a credit card. Like, no, no, it's totally cool. You can use a debit card. I'm like, no, I don't think you can. <laughs> and, you know, that was a six-hour ordeal trying to you know, help them get a van rented because you can't use a, a, a debit card to rent a van where they were trying to rent a van. And it proceeded from there to get exponentially worse to by the time the tour got to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, and we went, you know, North from the Bay area across Canada, down the East coast through the South. We were in the Southwest the night before we were in Albuquerque. We were in Austin, Texas played a really cool show in Austin, Texas. And as the headliner, was loading their stuff out with the help of some of their fans, a drunk driver hit their van. Oh shit. To the point where they had to dive in the van to keep from getting hit themselves. And it was like, Hey, you guys. Okay. They just ripped your door. Mm. (laughs) Is everybody okay? I go to their tour manager. Excuse me. They were a little younger than us. And I said, Hey, call the cops so that you can get a report for your insurance. Sure. Yeah. Right. And one of the fans yells out, Abcab, Abcab, you know, don't call the cops. And I was like, but it's it's for insurance purposes. It's yeah, like, you're not like getting them to to chase somebody down and but, uh, but also a drunk driver almost killed you. Yeah. Fans, and they kept going. It wasn't like the person hit them, stopped, and said, Oh, I'm sorry. A friend of mine uh had come to the show and one of the friends he brought had jumped in front of that person that stopped them. Because they were just mowing down cars. Jesus. They, they were, it was bad. Yeah. Somebody could have got severely hurt. And so by the time the cops come, the, the headliner, so it was, a, it was a young woman and her friends in the car. And the young woman driving was wasted. And the headliner goes, oh, it's a shame to see a woman go through this because she's going through the drunk test. And I was like, a shame? She almost killed you. <laughs> like, it's a shame she's on the road. Yeah, seriously. Like, sh- <laughs> there's nothing happening right now that that is like a travesty of justice, right? Yeah, even uh, in like a, a a police free society or a society where like the police are have submitted to like a larger authority, you'd still need to stop people from drinking like 15 shots and just driving around and just. Hitting mowing people, down, mowing down, pedestrians. Yeah. So, so that was, you know, again, I was like, hey, it's not about trying to be the world's biggest cop. It's just about you need to have a police report for your insurance. It's as simple as that, right? It's a rental car. Yeah. You just bring the rental car back with no door. Um. So we took their gear. We were sharing some gear. We took their gear. We motored to the next city, and I was like, hey, if anything happens and you can't make it, let me know, and we got your stuff, so you're good. And it was like a long drive, maybe like a 12-hour drive, I think, to the next town. We get to the next city, 
and I got a phone call and they were like, well, and you know, when you're, when you're going on tour like this and your main support, uh, usually locals are going to bring their own gear, but there were some locals that had been using our stuff as well because we were sharing a drum kit with the headliner mm. and, the, and the headliner was letting like the locals share our stuff and they were just beating it to hell. Mm. And they called us and they're like, oh, we're going to bump you guys tonight because our friends want to play with us in Albuquerque. And I was like, well, that's too bad for your friends. Maybe they can go on tour once in their life. And, and you help. drove 12 fucking hours yeah. for this. Yeah. Like, nah, that's not how this works. And so someone got on the phone and they were like, I guess their friends were like natives, Native American. They were like, you know, you're on native land. You know where you are. Get out like, of here. Yeah. I was like, check this out. First of all, you're telling the black man where he belongs. That's problematic in and of itself. Not very I'm, woke. Not down, I'm not, I'm not going to go down that route. Maybe they're but, not woke right. enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was like beyond that, just beyond that. That's not how this works. Right. If you want to, if you want to say, Hey, can I get a show in the Bay area? I'll, I'll get help you get a show in the Bay area. I'll play the, the early slot to make sure you have people in front of you to play, like just make sure you're playing in front of people so you can sell merchandise so you can help build a fan base. That's how this works. So it seems to me they wanted their friends to play and bump you after you guys went for 12 hours yeah. and they horribly cynically used a land acknowledgement type <laughs> you're on native land to try to get you guys to back out of your own show is that what happened yes not working oh right. my god so and there was other incidents where you know i had said something in columbus ohio about don't be a dick and they said when you said dick it's offensive to women that could be transitioning to to their females are transitioning to males and you're saying that the penis is a negative thing and people can get offended by that so mm. don't use the word dick in a negative connotation i was like are you serious mm. like we're this is like a punk metal show like are you really okay interesting you're gonna scold me for this okay that yeah. is a level of language policing that I don't encounter in my life very much. And you were with uh with these people for six weeks, you said? Every yes, every, this was every day. And then that was right before we went on to Toronto and they were like, Well, you know, Toronto's really woke and you can't say this. It was it was it was a nightmare. So by the time that thing happened in Albuquerque, I was literally taking their gear and throwing it in the street. And I was like, What? And so and so, you know, one of the guys grabbed me. I was like, Jay, <laughs> you're Jay. You're being. You're doing toxic masculinity right now. Okay. You got. We got. You know. Somebody. The drummer got yelled at for that once, um, as he was trying to help them set up their their uh, their pedal board. It was it was a nightmare of of uh, I guess you would say wokeness. No wonder you walked off when you had mentioned the story. I, you know, I, I didn't know what it was that finally broke you, but those combination of things, man, that's, that's pretty rough. Does this, is this common? Uh, this, this must not be common because you don't walk off tours all the time, right? No, you usually walk off tour if you can't afford it. Right. right. There, there was definitely money issues. There was money that we were promised for every show that we didn't get. Um, we were promised we were going to get paid in us dollars in Canada. We didn't get that. <laughs> So it's you, you, you. I can shrug that stuff off, yeah, way easier because you know it's just the business that we're in. We're all not rock stars, so we're we're struggling. I mean, this band is is much larger than us, and they're doing quite well right now, which is why you know I've never 
say their name now, but um, it, it's just, it was, it was not fun. We all walked away from it. Like this is, this is insane. What, what we're dealing with. And we would have like, there would be fights sometimes in crowds. Well, I just Googled it. I, I, I know you didn't want to mention their name, but I Googled it and I figured out who they are and I will never support Converge again. That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> the, the irony is, the irony is, Andy, you're trying to be cute. They're like, there's like one degree of separation away from Converge. <laughs> I'm being totally serious. Converge was the hardest, chat, the hardest show I've ever seen in my life. There if there's a chat in here. If there's a chat in here. I'm gonna. I, I need to tell you how I met them. Can I? Can I? Is there a chat? There's a chat in here. I can tell you. I just want. I don't want to say it on air because I'll give it away. Um, well, while you chat that out, I've got some thoughts. The first thought on. Uh, okay. On. <laughs> On your on your story is that I think these people think they're doing politics. Yes, but this doesn't seem like politics to me. This this seems um, really kind of perverse, to be honest. Like I understand where their this conception comes from. I understand what injustices they think they're trying to right. Um, but at a certain point, you just come off like a complete asshole. Uh, especially the fact that uh, they're trying to outwoke. Um, uh, woke you and using um oh, land acknowledgements was, and all that and you're not a particularly unwoke guy you're not like an anti-woke warrior dude no that's how i i met them because i was so shocked at some of the things that i thought they were saying in front of these all-white audiences that i didn't think would be receptive to this stuff because my time doing this music was mostly in like red states and in, in different parts of the world that aren't as quote-unquote progressive and i never really got to tour with the high art people you know, there's like hipster metal, right? Oh, yeah. I never really got to do too much touring with the hipster metal people. So going out and seeing kind of this siloed audience that they had, I was I thought it was going to be a little more diverse of thought. Um, and it wasn't. And it wasn't as leftish as I thought it was going to be. Mm. Like, I remember we were in Seattle the night that Kashama Sawant had won that special election where Amazon and Microsoft had spent all that money to keep her off the city council. And I like screamed it from the stage and everyone just stared at me. Like I was, they had no fucking idea. Had no huh? idea who wow. she was. That's not at all surprising. Cause again, this is sort of like a sub political subculture. I feel like, like the kid, the kid at the concert that we went to was again, very young. And he's a black kid growing up in the Midwest. Who's into folk. And folk music, as we know, I mean, Andy's talked about this on the show plenty, um, has its roots, you know, in leftism, in popular front leftism, like the collection of all of these um, old sort of popular tunes. And then keeping that alive through the 50s and 60s was sort of a political project. And the intersection between like the socialist, communist, anarchist left of the 20th century and the folk revival was really huge. So everybody knows, walk, going to the folk show that we went to, that there is a sort of undercurrent of something political about it, something vaguely leftish about it. But when 
politics in this country does two things. The first is, of course, it always devolves to red versus blue, Democrat versus Republican. <clears throat> so this kid obviously has like Democrat politics, which is fine. Right. But uh, the other thing uh, that it does is it makes sort of like emotions and intentions and love versus hate and believe in the science. It gets all these shibboleths. It turns that into politics itself. And so for a kid who clearly doesn't know anything about the 75 year history of Zionism, of the Palestinian struggle, a history that and I've been shocked over the last six weeks, a history that, um, you know, I practically feel like I learned in the cradle. That history now is submerged in a way that even like 15 years ago, it wasn't. People who are just glancing on the television and looking at the atrocities of October 7th without any background whatsoever, simply read, watching MSNBC or CNN or reading local news or reading whatever they read on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, apparently now can very easily fall into this thing where, of course, um, resistance is anti-Semitism and that the IDF is Judaism and that a Jewish song is meant to support um, Israel and the struggles that they're going through. It was on top of being maddening at, at this event. It was also quite shocking to see the political retrogression on the broader left that we've seen over the last weeks and how it's permeated itself into culture and the culture wars. Very, very shocking. So I went through my outraged moment and then I went through my um, shock and dismay moment. But then as I've been thinking about it, it's sort of like, the way that 60s music, you know, there's like songs about Kent State, you know, the hippy dippy shit. There's songs about like breaking free. There's songs about freedom and doing your own thing and hating your parents or whatever. As it gets passed down to, you know, to like the jam band circuit, as I saw back like 20 years ago when I used to work at it, it becomes denuded of any political content whatsoever. And so it feels like even now Israel-Palestine has been denuded of any political content, just as, you know, as this kid got up on stage and saw it as a, as a hate thing, you know. So those are my broader thoughts on it. So. But that's the scary part about these conversations that kind of center around the the evils of just kind of racism at large and not necessarily even discrimination. Um when, when you think about it, because your fear is, do these protests that we see just become people advertising their lifestyle brand, which has become their personality? Because unlike um, the, the movie or play, Glengarry Glen, Glen Ross, the mm. always be closing, there really mm. is no deal anyone's closing, but people are always selling. And now we're at a moment where especially uh, younger people uh, feel very comfortable to be a billboard and that there's people in the social media circles that are quote unquote professional activists and you go, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, what are you doing? I don't even know what that means. Right. Um, so that, that's what's I think scary for some of us to, to hopefully this can grow into some sort of movement, right? We're seeing a lot of really great labor struggles in this country right mm -hmm. now. There seems to be people waking up to the power of their labor. This is how we can challenge capital, right? With withholding our labor power. Um, but we don't want to see this moment devolve into, I was at the protest and I got yelled at by the police because I was yelling at the police. Mm -hmm. Ergo, I'm an activist. 
activism, activism, activism. Let's use this opportunity to talk about the activist that you examined in your uh, Damage Mag article, who is uh, Ibram X. Kendi, an activist who's managed to, I think, uh, gain a lot of prestige and a lot of renown. And it seems like with that Boston University thing, a whole lot of money off of um, the anti-racism uh, industry, right? This is essentially what you're talking. You're talking about what he was selling and yeah. how that fits into uh, the history of the last seven, eight years since uh, the Bernie Sanders style democratic socialism kind of bubbled up into the ether. So tell us about uh, your article uh, and your and your thoughts on on his activism. Sure. Um, originally, the piece was going to be about what happened with Kendi in Boston University where he got busted, right? And then wanted to make the piece a little bit more evergreen and talk about my kind of hatred for this bourgeois politics of, of DEI, right? Mm -hmm. Diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. Is that what it is? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Kendi, I, another fear that I had about making it too much about Kendi is people start to feel that when the bad man is gone or when the bad man is not being talked about in our social circles then that thing is over and that's not necessarily true right so it's not that kendi is the creator of this style of, of thinking it's that he probably is the best at making it profitable and let's also keep in mind that despite the fact that he might be going through uh, a small scandal at boston university where nothing's really come out of out of his think tank there's a movie now coming out about his first book stamp from the beginning so the Kindy story is not over because mm. the message is still powerful. Replace him, there'll be someone else doing the same thing, probably with a slightly more radical veneer, uh, i.e. Taiwo with elite capture, right? It's the same thing. Um, so my thing with, with Kindy is, or, or the Bernie movement is, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump come on the scene around the same time in 2015, and it's a time where people are really looking for new political heroes. And it's like the gods bestowed upon us two political heroes straight out of central casting. Mm -hmm. They both have these great New York accents that adds authenticity to the words they say, right? And they both seem to be um, very authentic and believable. And Bernie Sanders has something that a lot of older leftists appreciate. And that is, he's really about what he talks about. He has the receipts, as people say, mm -hmm. of being an outsider to the Democratic Party, as being an independent for so long, winning in Vermont as an independent mayor, I believe, right? And admitting that he was a socialist for so long. Did I cut you off, Andy? No, I'm here. Okay. Um, and so when he's speaking at a rally for Medicare and Social Security, two things they greatly benefit black people, mm. right? That they fought to, <laughs> to be a part of. Yeah. He's interrupted by BLM because they want to talk about the evils of police, racist police violence. And in a moment where maybe you probably want to align your politics with this guy, you're speaking out and saying that he doesn't have a black agenda. Also, one thing that I had to omit from this piece because you only have so many words is the emergence of Ta-Nehisi Coates with the case for reparations, mm -hmm. um, which is really big in making the reparations argument um, part of your a political agenda, right? So Bernie Sanders 
now, and, and it was the second time they had interrupted him to say the same thing, didn't have a, quote, black agenda to deal with the perils of racist police violence. And there are some, some things that BLM was talking about as far as economic equality, but the broader context of what they're saying is there's these racist cops and they need to stop being racist cops. And until we can stop racist cops, until we can defund this military machine called the police, then, you know, and only then will we be able to have harmony in, in black and brown communities. And so it kind of kneecaps this politics of social democracy under the guise of racial democracy. Once we have racial democracy, when everything's racially even, then we can think about social democracy, which is kind of what Kendi talks about in How to Be an Anti-Racist, right? Mm -hmm. He starts the book off and he says, there's these conjoined twins. It's capitalism and racism. And if you, you can't be an anti-capitalist without being an anti-racist. And until you're an anti-racist, we can't even really begin to talk about capitalism. So he kind of waves his hand to say that he believes that capitalism is a, probably a bad thing. But first, we have to get inside the hearts and minds of white people and win those over. Mm -hmm. And then he has this kind of overly simplistic conclusion for all isms. If you're homophobic, if, if you're a sexist, just don't be homophobic or sexist and don't support policies that may be homophobic and sexist in nature. And because it is through these policies and these policies alone um, that hinder black people, gay people, trans people, etc. Um and it's like, well, that's that's not true. <laughs> like, you know, originally the civil rights movement is about you know economic freedom and, and independence. You know, but Kendi kind of sees it through the the end of the "I Have a Dream" speech, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how everyone sees the civil rights moment. And this is going to be a more radical way to do it. And you know, in the piece, I kind of get into how he positioned himself to have the perfect message um, for corporate America as well. And it was the perfect message to the Democratic Party to really push against the, the growing popularity of public goods, uh, social democracy, which is even if we regulate banks, it doesn't stop people from being sexist or racist. It's like, okay, but... If you do regulate you, banks, I don't care. Do you have a sense going back to 2015? Because that's when this sort of linchpin of your article happens, when the mm -hmm. BLM um, people, activists, uh, confront Bernie on stage. I remember that happening. I remember it on the news. Do you have a sense that that was part of Hillary's campaign against him before that happened? Or did she use that as a pivot to say that she's on the side of anti-racism and talk about uh, Bernie's lack of a black agenda? I will only give my opinion as I don't know the, the inner workings of Democratic Party politics. There are people in our worlds um, who believe that it was a hit when they saw it. Excuse me. Um, I think they saw that as the ultimate pivot um, because they, those same people had hit Hillary. Mm. If you remember, Bill Clinton is speaking for Hillary around the same time. I can't remember what conference it was for. There had to be some black because there was a bunch of black people there. And a bunch of BLM people were yelling about the 94 crime bill. 
Mm. If you remember, Bill Clinton yells and goes, you people asked for this. Mm, you people. And you know what? He's not lying. Mm-hmm. I remember it. And he's right. 911 is a joke. Remember that? Yeah. Go back and watch Boys in the Hood. That might as well be a, a, a commercial for the 94 crime bill. Well, now we're getting into, I think, like a larger discussion of um, the legitimacy of the representation of black politics, right? Because Ooh. when he says you people, mm-hmm. right, he's not talking specifically to the younger activists in the crowd or to like rank and file, let's call them black people in yeah. the United States. He what by you people, he means their quote unquote representatives, which is yes. the black leadership class, right? Yes. And they were, as you said, um, by and large, in support of uh, more police, more carceral solutions. But then, of course, too, because this is America, you get the slippage between those who are meant to represent and then like the vast majority of people who are the represented. Well, we have to remember, like, let's go back to the late 80s and 90s. And I know I'm older than both of you guys. Not by much. Not by much on you, Sean, but I think I'm way older than Andy. Oh, Andy's you, a youngin, yeah. How old do you think yeah. I am? You are like at least early 30s, Andy. I'm 36. Okay, sorry, Grandpa. <laughs> That's all right. Sorry. You're not too sorry. Sorry. sorry, Sorry, Paul. I didn't, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't know I was talking to an elder millennial over there. <laughs> uh, but you know, I'm 46. I got you by 10 years. Okay. And older, I, was dodging, I, I was dodging bullets in the San Francisco Bay Area and Richmond, California in those years. I really was. And mm-hmm. friends died. My stepmom used to make popcorn. We would watch the crack house across the street get raided. The shit would look like Benny Hill. They mm. they bust out the back door. Right? That 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 was that is my reality, right? And one of the things that I remember was people like Ishmael Reed in 1991 saying, I don't care if he's 13 years old, I want life sentences for these crack dealers. So what we're seeing in the 80s and 90s is the free flow of cheap cocaine up from South America and open-air drug markets that aren't really being policed heavily and something especially in Southern California that they have, which is a distribution system with street gangs. Mm. So what we're seeing is not wayward black youth with no fathers. What we're seeing is deindustrialized areas like the one I grew up in Richmond, California, South Central Los Angeles. Right? There's, there's more throughout the country. I don't know every uh, bad city with Negroes in Houston, Chicago, right? Ferguson. <laughs> yeah, for, right. Ferguson, right? All these, there are all these areas where there was no industry, but you have these large black communities. And now you have, and you probably had a bit of a gang problem from the 70s, right? Post Panthers. And so you, you have these instant distribution areas, there's systems. And now you also have a captive audience that wants to consume this product because cocaine is still a wonder drug. In the early to mid 80s, being able to get a kilo of cocaine at three to five thousand dollars, cut it and cook it down into its rock form and free base, which again is popular way before we call it crack, it's just called free base. Mm-hmm. Um, it's affordable. You're making an affordable product that people want, and you're able to make massive amounts of profits. That three to five thousand dollar investment is now worth maybe fifty to a hundred thousand dollars, depending on how you're rocking it up and selling it. And you can sell it out of apartment complexes that nobody cares about, HUD houses nobody cares about, bad neighborhoods. These neighborhoods and street corners are now worth millions of dollars a week, tens of millions of dollars a month. You know, you're going to protect that investment because you don't have the same thing that corporate America has, which is the power of the courts to mm-hmm. tie up people legally if you need to take over area, buy property, et cetera, et cetera. So we're seeing 
something that's a popular term in the 80s hostile takeovers mm-hmm. quite yeah, violent. gordon gecko this is this is this is inner city gordon gecko stuff that we're seeing that actually if you think about it pales in comparison to what we see in corporate america because corporate america with their takeovers moving factories overseas decimating entire municipalities right they're destroying entire states economies by moving factories plural we're talking about a few cities here and there that are dealing with you know again i lived it so it was violent it was scary but still it pales in comparison to what we saw due to financial deregulation so the solution to this problem is build more jails lock them up what the clinton administration does that no one really talks about and shout out to toure reed for bringing this up to me in a casual conversation we were having is in 93 right before the crime bill rolls out and we're slowly starting to see a lot of talk about three strikes you're out which actually gets challenged by the supreme court if people remember we can talk about the poly class case later if you want to but um, what happens in 93 is the Clinton administration adds a certain sensing requirement on to um, 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 hate crime law. So you're like, hey, black people, before we start locking up this surplus population that we have in, these, in the decimated urban core that you guys are kind of stuck in right now, we're going to roll out hate crime law. So if any white people commit a hate crime, there's a mandatory sentence they have to serve now. Mm. We see you, we hear you, we got your back. Hmm. Now, in the 80s and 90s, I'm not running or dodging bullets from the Klan. <laughs> There's no white supremacist presence, you know, in Richmond, California, in Oakland, California, in South Central Los Angeles. Now, if you watch talk shows, these guys at, the, at this time period are everywhere on talk shows, but all of these conversations and situations you're seeing are literally manufactured. Yeah, You're Jerry never- Springer when the Klansman comes on and ends up getting into a fist fight with people. Yeah. But it's the Klansman and a black nationalist. And the conversation is this Klansman, you know, doesn't want to marry your daughter, or this Klansman wants a white ethno state. So, so what's your nice water? It doesn't what- matter. What you're so what you're saying is that this hate crimes legislation mm-hmm. was paired with Mm-hmm. The uh, three strikes you're out uh, mandatory sentencing law <laughs> in order to what create parity or to be like a way to soften uh, yes. the carceral solution coming for the black community. Because on the one hand, you can say we're going to throw a million black kids in jail right mm-hmm. for for their crimes, for being antisocial. But at the same time, if a Klansman comes and attacks your community, which barely, as you said, barely happens in this era, we've got your back in this sense. So it's yeah. a one two punch. Yeah, it's a way to accept this person that's literally the first quote unquote black president. Thanks, Toni Morrison. The late <laughs> I'm sure she regretted it after, you know, the years. Oh, later. I would so, hope so. Right? Well, a lot, he a lot did of, play a mean sax, though, I will say. Thanks, Arsenio. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but Bill, Bill Clinton, everybody loves him. My grandmother met him at something and she was like, you know, I really like Bill Clinton. I'm not going to argue with my grandmother. Incredibly charismatic man. Right. Cuts welfare. Also, we have to talk about kind of a burgeoning black middle class that's looking down their nose at the black poor. Around the same time that that welfare bill comes to be, and I'm not saying this in any conspiratorial way, I'm just kind of trying to let people understand the, the, the thought of a nation. Right? 
um, the collective thought of a nation. Chris Rock does the N-words and black people joke. Do you guys remember the N-words and black people joke? I do, yeah. That is Bill Cosby speak 101, Mm -hmm. right? There's there's a group of black people that all black people hate, and that's the N-word. That's the poor black person, but he doesn't say the poor black person. In 2003, when Bill Cosby does a pound cake speech, right? I don't care that the kid was kids, uh, got shot stealing pound cake because why was he stealing pound cake in the first place? You, you people need to stop naming your kids these stupid names, blah, blah, blah. That's the Chris Rock joke. And what we see with a lot of the Kendi stuff mm-hmm. is a way to commodify this moralization of of racist talk and how we're going to deal with certain segments of the black community because what you always end up with with what Kenny's trying to do is become the racial ventriloquist uh, of an entire people. Right. So why does, so, so Kendi himself um, does in his own life, the shift between like mm-hmm. the pull your pants up mm-hmm. uh, to the anti-racism and you're, what are you, you're arguing that they're both moralizing political moves. It's just that mm-hmm. it flips the, the bad actor around. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like this, it, it, you know, Kendi goes, he starts his book off. He's like, you know, I embraced these racist ideologies and through my spiritual journey into anti-racism, I know that it was policies. So he looks at the 94 crime bill as just racist in nature. Mm. So almost like Michelle Alexander kind of, and, and her working theory, we, we, we forget that even she writes in the new Jim Crow, like this is still something working out. And you're probably not going to agree with everything. And if you, she stopped doing a lot of speaking, but when she was doing speaking kind of a few years after the book, she would go back and say, you know, I, I probably was wrong about this. I didn't include Latin people. And Michelle Alexander in her book says white people are collateral damage. Mm. Right? Like they were never supposed to be caught up in mass incarceration. But they are. Mm. They're getting fat Rico cases for making bathtub meth in, in the middle of the country. They're getting Rico cases for stealing scripts you know, in, in certain parts of the country as well, getting put under the jail. So yes, they're, they, they are suffering as well under mass incarceration. Poor people are suffering. Yeah. yeah. Racialize it. Right. 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 And, and Kendi kind of goes from that standpoint of overly racializing everything. And he's able to kind of commodify this as we don't have to talk about economic policy. We don't have to talk about jobs programs. We can just talk about what's in your heart. Now, if you're a corporation that is dealing with one of the largest amounts of, uh, I think the most educated women are black women. So there's Mm -hmm. a lot more black women in corporate spaces. That means there's a lot more black women that have to hear goofy white women say stupid shit about their hair. Mm. That's going to (laughs) become, that may be a bigger deal. It's annoying, right? How do you deal with this new workforce? You know, anti-racism. I got to run in a second, but I I have a couple thoughts I want to to throw past you. So first, I think that um, Kendi did become so popular when he did uh, after BLM and the 2020 uprising because the uprising had spread. I think it largely failed to spread to manufacturing jobs, more working class jobs, but it did spread extremely uh, widespread throughout more corporate jobs, NGO spaces, places like that. And it, I mean, I, I didn't work in those spaces, but I know that this led to in major crises in, in that world. And, you know, HR and managers had to figure out a way to rein it in. And mm-hmm. Candy gave 
a very convenient uh, uh, formula for integrating a form of um, uh, uh, anti-racism that didn't challenge the corporate structure at all. And in fact, helped make uh, their non-white employees uh, feel more comfortable participating in the business. These questions that Kennedy addresses weren't the only questions that people were bringing up. People were bringing, also bringing up pay inequality and saying, mm-hmm. hey, how about on our Slack, we all say what we're earning and mm. we'll see if there's some disparity there based on gender or race. And so I don't know if Kendi talks about that at all, uh, but I would imagine that Kendi's sold so well and became so popular because he offered a way to diffuse that growing revolt. The second thing I want to say is going back to 2015 and the disruption of Sanders' speech, I think that the fact that I don't know if Sanders had anything in his platform about mass incarceration, although I think it's reasonable to assume that as president, he would have had some kind of prison reform, Mm -hmm. justice reform. Mm -hmm. You know, he should have. You know, that's an important issue. And it's in a way it is a way of correcting this legacy of the crime bill. And the stuff that James Foreman Jr. talks about in Locking mm. Up Our Own. Um, and in that book, F- Foreman says, uh, we need to treat the root cause of this problem. So it, it's, it's certainly not just about defunding the police or uh, defunding the prisons, but mm. also making sure what gives, gives rise to the crime issue is attacked at the root. So he's, yeah, he's got a very social democratic approach to this problem. But Sanders was seen by these activists, maybe genuinely or not, as being social democratic without having a racial consciousness to what social democracy could achieve. And if we're to straw man their argument, I think like maybe they have a point, maybe disrupting him isn't the right way to go. But then my last point is like, let's jump to the present day where Mm -hmm. Sanders is now on the outs again with Mm -hmm. our wing of the Mm -hmm. left because he's got a very moderate position on Israel where he's sort of calling for a ceasefire, sort of calling for uh, less weapons to be transferred to Israel, less funding for, for Israel. Uh, it, you know, and he's probably, as a senator, the, the most close to our position on this, but it's still not far enough for uh, people who see what Israel's doing as a, as a genocide. So mm-hmm. could, we, could we make the same critique about opposition to Sanders today, saying, well, Sanders is not... Sanders is still being too wishy-washy or economistic on Israel. I'll, I'll say these two things that probably won't sound nice. Sanders historically has had a bad position on Israel. The only person I ever heard speak out about Sanders' position on Israel while he was running in 2015 was Chris Hedges, hmm. who a lot of people look at him because he's a man of faith. For whatever reason, even though he's friends with like Cornell West and they're both men of faith that have taught at Harvard Divinity, um, as he's, a, he's very conservative. Um so I think his warnings got ignored quite a bit and maybe because he also debated Hitchens and people looked at him as a bad, as like a, the bad man in that situation. Uh-huh. But uh, Hedges has always had a pretty even level headed, I think, critique of Sanders. There's a 2014 political article, 2014 or 2015 political article where Sanders is in a debate about Israel, Palestine. And one of the things that the Clinton administration is saying is that he's too soft on Palestine. Mm. It's not hard enough. And even Washington insiders felt that he was pretty standard centrist for his take on Israel Palestine. So historically, if you know you followed Bernie Sanders, you knew that that was always going to be maybe a weak link. Um, 
Then I'll go on to say, what black program did Barack Obama have to get that much of the black vote in 2008 and 2012? Or what Biden. reparations program did, did Barack Obama have? You know, Joe Biden also doesn't have a black program. So did Bernie Sanders need one? Um, is he, he's also, you're also talking about, like, I'm just saying this as a realist. Not, I'm not saying that I would not want him to have a program to address these things. But I understand the person running for president probably wants to talk to voting people. That's generally how that works. They want to talk to people that already vote, not people that don't vote. Um, again, I don't agree with the way inside politicos do things, but that's just the way it works. So to try to work on an agenda for a population of people that literally can't vote, millions of people that don't vote, it's like, well, you can talk about that if you want to, but it wasn't a problem for a lot of people because a lot of people didn't suffer from it, right? Unless you've literally suffered yeah. from losing people in your family to getting extra long sentences due to the 94 crime bill. Like when people always go back and look at crime numbers and go, well, it's down from the 90s. Well, of course it's down from the 90s. You start locking everybody up and throwing them under the jail. So that's still a relatively new talking point that I don't think anybody was really up on and here we are in 2023 about to see 2024 and i and i feel very comfortable that no one's really going to talk about mass incarceration because what started happening in places like california is you start to get more and more people let out of prison because literally the prisons were so full cats were dying in holding cells mm -hmm. So what you guys are seeing in Rikers in New York, where you're from, this has been happening in California for about a year. And it got so bad that the state legislature was like, we got to start letting people out because these prisons are way too overcrowded. And we have to start changing sentencing requirements because you're locking people up for like $300 of steel and stuff. That's, that's up to $1,000. So that's why you see these kids with these big smash and grabs at the Gucci store. If yeah. it's under a certain amount of money, nobody's going to lock you up for it, right? It's a misdemeanor. So you start getting this legislation literally because prisons are overcrowded and people are dying inside of prisons waiting to see doctors. Um, it doesn't come down because Gavin Newsom or you know Politician X is trying to have a more humane carceral system or someone's trying to solve the problems of mass incarceration. Well, this is like in a broader sense, this entire discussion um, boils down to, and I, I mean both the, uh, the Bernie Sanders stuff on uh, BLM and mass incarceration back in 2015 in that campaign uh, up to um, Gaza and Israel uh, to this day. The mode of politics that we're all dealing with is various is um, brokerage between Oof. various different yes. aspects of the Democrat coalition. So Bernie Sanders, the the entire uh, premise of the Sanders campaign in 2016, and I suppose in 2022, or I'm sorry, 2020, although it had already been disproven, was that you could bring in millions of disaffected non-voters poor people who were mm -hmm. intrigued uh, by a return to social Democrat uh, or progressivism, progressive policies, a stronger welfare state. Um, you could bring in uh, union members by talking about um, a radical reform to the National Labor Relations Act under Bernie Sanders. Uh, and that this would reinvigorate the Democratic coalition and ultimately overthrow the centrist block of the Democratic Party, represented, of course, as we know, by uh, black voters in uh, South Carolina. Mm. Um, 
by 2016, this, uh, this strategy showed that it failed. Uh, and in 2020, it was sort of a pale reflection of what had been attempted in 2016. Now, as we sit, and it's about to be 2023, we're after Thanksgiving and we're getting up to Christmas. I guess the, the larger question, the broader question I would have for all of us is like, what, um, what does, how do we put a bookend on this? It feels like uh, Kendi's um, Boston University uh, fraud case might be a nice bookend on his anti-racism you career, you would think. It uh, might even be a good bookend or closing point for the entirety of the DEI thing. But for reasons you guys have discussed, it seemed, it's too useful. It's too like structurally important to have uh, this sort of anti-racist ideology and practice um, for uh, American liberalism in corporate America and elsewhere. Um, where do we go now that like even the premises of Bernie Sanders top down bottom up strategy of like creating a movement from the top from the top down in order to I guess ex post facto after he becomes president be a sounding board for a new social movement that doesn't exist yet. Now that that's gone, you know, what do we do with all of this this energy. Po political back and forth and this energy and do we have to engage and in what way with Democrat Democratic Party brokerage politics if this is really at the end of the day about the fear that Joe Biden and his advisors have that he's going to lose the Palestinian American vote or the Arab American vote in Michigan uh, come next year. Like, what does that mean for our politics, for communist politics, for socialist politics, if the Bernie Sanders um, theorem the, the mm -hmm. whole theory behind his run has already years back, almost a decade ago, proven untenable. I mean, I'm, you guys have seen the star Wars movies, right? The first three. Yeah, sure. You remember empire strikes back the movie where the heroes are constantly running. <laughs> they're, they're losing, right? They, and at the end of the movie, they've lost Luke's hand is gone. Han's frozen in carbonite. <laughs> The the rebel fleet is disbanded throughout the galaxy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the way I feel right now with this iteration of the left. Like it's not time for us to to worry about trying to blow up the Death Star because we're just not there, and we have to be comfortable about saying, "Look, dude, we're just not there." But there is hope. Um, when I see someone like Chris Smalls, um, who is I interviewed him, I used to know him pretty well before his star took off. Um, he gives me hope because he's a real working class dude from real working class background that's making inroads and talking about organizing on some social democracy. He talks about being in uncomfortable situations. It's not all about the evils of what's in the hearts of, of white people. Right. And, you know, he acknowledges that racism exists and he acknowledges that sometimes he has to work with people he didn't mean and agree with 100% across the political spectrum. And that's super important. I mean, Sean, you work in unions. Mm. You know this as well as anybody else. Mm -hmm. sure when does. you're in a union, not everybody in the union, you're not voting the same way, you're not watching the same shows. It's, but you guys understand together united, we can make capital, you know, listen to our demands and have to work, have to negotiate with us and slowly i think we're getting back to this point where we're starting to understand that but my fear my pessimism is more so about 
the culture industry, in my opinion, is the new opiate of the masses. It's no longer mm-hmm. religion. It hasn't been for some time. And how is this opiate of the masses affecting the masses at large? Right. And are we going to take this energy that we see people in the streets protesting about the atrocities that are happening in the Middle East? Because we didn't see the same sort of mass protests for Russia, Ukraine. We did not. That's true. And I live in I live in a country where there's a lot of Ukrainian refugees here Mm -hmm. from that. that. Also, I'm literally doing a documentary about Ukrainian uh, refugees that have fled to Georgia and Tbilisi. You know, doing a, a do probably alongside a lot of Russian refugees who have also fled. To yeah, <laughs> a bunch of cats that didn't want to fight and die, and talking about the things that they ran from, and you know the, the small little punk scene they're forming there. A good friend of mine, Alexander Herbert, who uh, wrote a great book for Zero about uh, horror movies during the era of the Soviet Union, um, went out there for a couple months and did a bunch of interviews with a lot of the refugees and also people that were part of the original Soviet punk scene which was you know highly regulated and, and policed and kind of illegal so um it's interesting that we pick and choose what we're mad about and i think that's important to think about it's uh, difficult to even pick and choose anymore when you say culture industry right this is a term that goes back to the mid-20th century and it was about the stupefying effects of mass media and making us uh consent uh, to the capitalist social relation through consumerism or making us um, inert, right? Simply watching a, a, a movie or a, tel- or a television program in front of. But now the culture industry in the 21st century is much darker because it's not even about Oof. being a soporific. It's instead the culture industry is breeding culture war. And it's like an internal war. If the culture industry helps to like win the Cold War, Right, because you're um, sitting there in front of a screen and watching television or listening to music instead of, I don't know, like supporting Brezhnev or something, this external <laughs> enemy. Now it's the culture industry is getting us all riled up so that you have to lose tour and I got to walk out of shows because <laughs> people are so absolutely like uh, blinkered in their worldviews through this cultural apparatus that has each other at each, at, at each other's throats. You know, much darker. Much darker than, say, something like a Dorno would about, write about. Something I've been thinking about with like the, the rebirth of an anti-war movement around what's going on in mm-hmm. Gaza is that there's, there's a, something the left just can't accept, which is that issues, for whatever reason, get the movements that they deserve or get the energy that they deserve in a way that leftists have an ability to influence but don't really know, like that relationship between how to get people coming out to the streets and what the issue is, is uh, like, it's still very mysterious. Mm -hmm. This is something that like um, reading Hegel, you can maybe understand how the the spirit of the age can be transferred to like the George Floyd uprising. Whereas like, like, you know, obviously JVP and if not now, and these pro-Palestinian groups have been out there for decades. um, Mm -hmm. And for the most, I think Israel killed 30,000 Palestinians in, in 2018 and there just wasn't mass protests. So why does it happen now? We, you know, one one thing we could say is like, oh, the they're brainwashing college kids, or like the media is anti-Israel. You know, that's obviously nonsense. I think there's just something about the the visibility and like the resonance of what's going on in Gaza now that has uh, people thinking about it in a way that's the politics aren't like very well articulated. But I think there's an identification with what Israel looks like, what the IDF looks like, and what 
life in Gaza looks like that's recognizable to counterinsurgency and the march of far-right reaction everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and I'm not sure really where I'm going with that other than like BLM was a moment like that, Occupy was a moment like that, the George Floyd uprising was a moment like that. And so when you get Sanders coming around with like a sort of traditional social democratic platform, you get a lot of people who are part of BLM who had the spirit of that moment saying, you've got to let us in. And maybe mm. they had, maybe they did it for careerist reasons or cynical reasons, but you know, maybe they are just like saying the new social democracy has to have this component to it. It's 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 trying to understand everything through like uber racialized terms and not asking yourself, well, how did that work out for us in the '60s, right? Because right. racial democracy is saying, well, if 10% of white people get something, 10% of black people need to get that same thing, right? And vice versa, or so on and so forth. So when you think about social democracy, we're talking about everybody gets this social good. But BLM and claims that, to be social democratic. Okay. I, don't, I don't think they're Kendiites, right? <laughs> Kendiites. Andy, Andy, you just made a new term, Kendiites. Or Kendi ca- asses. <laughs> talk about the Kendi man on my show. Kendi man, Kendi man. I... I think the problem is understanding that you get this kind of as uneven as the new deal is. We can't lie and say that the new deal didn't help lift, you know, tons of black people out of poverty. It helped that there were definitely, there's problems with it, right? We can't lie and say there's not, but instead the cry is, well, that was effed up because it was racist in its policy. So we can't even look at that as a template. And says, so well, if everybody had these social goods, then the, this makes sense. A jobs programs for everybody. Public works helped out a lot of people. But the new As- was also Reagan. a way of suppressing the CIO. So you, you had CIO members who initially supported the New Deal and helped reelect FDR have to come mm-hmm. out afterwards and oppose FDR because he had transferred all power to the AFL immediately afterwards. So I, I think you, you can read that in two different ways. It's like, yeah, it was this like you know, he used the social democratic or radical impulses of that period to lift people out of poverty, you know, public works and all this. But it was a, it was a way of actually destroying the movement. And so the movement under those circumstances has to struggle for life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to I think Andy's got to go in a little bit. And I, I got to go right now, actually. But you can. You you guys can keep, all right. You got but it. I'll listen, to your, I'll listen to your response. All right, Andy. See you later. That's that a good that's a good point. I can't. Yeah, no, like, um, I think what I would say, or at least the shit that I've been on recently, and I've owed everybody a sub stack for a little while now, but it's been really tough for me to kind of elaborate on how I've, I'm feeling in the post uh, Bernie Sanders moment. And like an intimation of that, me and Varn have talked a lot about what that moment meant, uh, what its limitations were what its upsides were, uh, um, but it, it definitely feels past now. And the Kendi moment, I feel like even the liberal media is talking about like peak woke having already happened, right? So I feel like your article is good to help us identify Kendiism and what it means vis-a-vis the politics of the most recent era. Uh, and also identify, I think, a lot of mistakes that were made, but including by myself, um, by not thinking, looking more critically at uh, people like this who are offering a, a sort of politics which on the face of it seems good, like anti-racism, anti-misogyny, anti-anti-Semitism, go IDF. 
not, you know, uh, you know, like we, we should be critical of this and we should be aware of this and we should be aware of when the next candy comes for sure. But the shit that I'm on right now is I think like you said, you're hopeful. I'm kind of hopeful too. I feel like there is a possibility now with how, um, how debased and retrograde American politics are right now. How dissolute is the connection between, say, young people and the Democratic Party? How clear is the at least semi-genocidal nature of what Zionism represents and what it's doing? Uh, and the symbol that that holds for so many millions of people uh, in the West who are watching these atrocities go on. I feel like we might actually have an opportunity at um, pulling back and going to some first principles and doing what Varn and me and others have been calling for for a long time now, which is to break the popular front between the left and the Democrats or between socialists and communists and, and the Democratic Party and anarchists too, who are caught up in this brokerage politics and this activism that wants to beg a ceasefire from those in power, wants to beg less funding for bombs or smaller bombs wants to beg them from the the Biden administration as like a humanitarian impulse for justice or whatever. Like I think, and this maybe ties back into the music thing. My politics have reverted to, or I guess you could say sublated my politics of the nineties, which was like a very gen X sort of subcultural politics, like a punk rock politics of like DIY and build your own, right? The, a world that you're in. And, you know, I'm, I'm still into an extent too, um, where I think it's possible for us to actually start building power within uh, civil society like start to actually start building institutions that are subcultures that reach towards uh, mass organization to create something like uh, associations and clubs and fraternal orders and sororal orders um, outside of the social media and outside of the democratic orbit, outside of the Republican orbit um, that could actually start pulling people together in the real world where we can know each other and start fighting alongside one another and build a socialist movement that doesn't seek to take over the state, but instead seeks to, and the process of replacing it, overthrow it. I feel like this is where our energy should be right now because spinning our wheels, you know, over and over again, trying to beg whatever the latest administration is to uh, throw us a bone on whatever policy it is, whether it's mass incarceration, whether it's the Social Security and the welfare state, or whether it's Gaza, or as we're probably going to see when Donald Trump gets back into office next, is it, would it be next year? I guess it'd be a little bit after next year, uh, immediately turn into resistance mode and basically become water carriers for that same Democratic Party, but this time being the opposition alongside them, that's even more opposed to Trump than the Democrats are, more radically. I think we have to break out of this shit. And I think Kendiism poses a individualistic solution uh, in a certain sense, becoming anti-racist oneself, eliminating the racist inside of yourself. And it, but its structural claims right, are to try to reform capitalism you know, reform the way that corporations work, reform racial structures within uh, policy, even creating a board of what is it, a department of anti-racism right within the state. There's a way I think we can not play that game, but still stay active and not be activists. So that's something we're going to all work on together. I hope people have to be comfortable with kind of getting beyond 
branding. We have to be like post woke America is going to have to be a post branding America. And I don't know if we're ready for that yet. I think we're still. Oh, uh, we gotta be ready. I man. want to look. It's, it's my nightmare, brother. It's my nightmare because there's a movie that you might have seen in 1990 called Pump Up the Volume with Christian. I Stone. have seen it. Yeah. If you remember, that movie ends with instead of a movement happening. A bunch of people get their own radio station. <laughs> and that's what I, that's my fear right now. We saw that with Bernie Sanders. How many front facing people in this campaign didn't just stay working uh, in Washington, but got podcasts mm. or, wrote, or wrote Oscar nominated screenplays? What I want to see is less, uh, is the left off of Twitter. Mm -hmm. I want to see the left off of podcasts. And I want to see a reformed left at uh, VFW halls and in mm. church basements sitting around mm. those shitty coffee urns and sitting in a circle on like terrible and uncomfortable folding chairs and actually being in front of one another. And actually, that this is a good way to, to sound us off. Um, I'm going to be in. Oh, are you going to be in the Bay Area for the holidays? I might be. If you're yeah. going to be around Christmas time, there's a good chance I'll be up north. All right. Well, I want to see you if we can pull that off, if you're up Ooh. there, because I'm going to be around, too. I got a lot of people I want to see there. But also, um, before we sign off, I want to say that in light of this conversation that we've had and some of my kind of harebrained proposals, we're going to be calling for a New York City meetup to talk about stuff for Antifada people sometime uh, this winter. So stay tuned for that. Uh, everybody should read your article. Everybody, if they don't do why would they not? watch and listen to this is revolution racism. racism yes yeah they're in a racism they're in a race uh hatred um would i guess cause you not to watch this i'll, I'll say this this is, this is real black shows sit in a certain place for a lot of people and if you don't see black people being you know stereotypically radical and you see a bunch of black cats making weird jokes about pog chaser mlk and <laughs> anti-racist uh, slick rick yeah or uh inward looking inward. <laughs> <laughs> that's still that's like still, the funniest clip still dude. gets me dude Look, i was trying to explain inward. it to my wife earlier <laughs> that was we the funniest moment of live broadcasting i've ever been a part of <laughs> we laughed so hard i had like a headache i laughed so me hard i still think about it and laugh to myself sometimes hey we're having fun and we're talking about serious stuff. Yes. But we're also, you know, we believe in meeting people in real places. Let's have socialist bowling leagues again. Don't That's be afraid to teach your kids Little League. That's it. Oh. Fucking start metal bands, man. Whatever. It's all good. Dude, Jason, thank you, man, so much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Let me know if you ever want to guest for uh, This Is Revolution. You know, I'm always down to come on. Don't tempt me with a good time as I'm trying to finish this kayfabe movie, so please. All right, brother. Sounds good, man. Jason, take care, brother. Thank you.